The scripture reading today is from Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. We are so um, pleased to have Brian Cropper this morning with us to preach and one of the gifts of the summer is bringing in multiple voices so we can hear uh, different voices in our community. And so we're so pleased to have Brian this morning to share with us. So would you join me in welcoming Brian Cropper? Good morning. I'm so glad to be here. I'm really uh, feel lucky to be up here. But the best part of coming to church is that view and hearing God's word. So I feel like I'm kind of missing out today. <laughs> Will you pray with me? Dear God, thank you for bringing us together to hear your word. Thank you for the opportunity to hear it in community. Um, Lord, I pray that as I speak to this congregation, to this church, um, that you are in my words, you are in my thoughts and uh, that you bring um, truth and honesty um, in, in this church through me. Amen. All right. Um, today's reading comes from a genre of scripture called epistles. An epistle means a letter meant for circulation, and the Bible includes 13 written by Paul. As a public form of writing, they're meant to be read aloud, heard aloud, and processed in community. I like epistles because they're at once historical and universal. They're addressed to a particular community or individuals, but they also have a testimonial quality, that is, something to say to you and me. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is particularly awesome for this because he includes a whole worship service in the letter. We could worship just like the first century church uh, by reading through this, as long as you're comfortable in Greek. The letter opens with a greeting and a poem modeled after the Psalms, which certainly could be sung, and then the teaching about the gospel. Paul prays for the spiritual growth of the community and then instructs them how to get along with one another and structure their lives differently in light of the gospel teaching. 
He challenges Christians with a spiritual imagery and concludes with a blessing. Chapter 4 sits in the middle of this at the transition to the practical part of the letter. Paul urges the Ephesians to live in unity and spiritual maturity in the body of Christ. My goal today is to wade into the specifics of his gospel message and show how Paul thinks worshiping together, um, but particularly singing, mirrors God's nature. I invite you to grab a Bible in the front and flip to Ephesians. It's in the New Testament after the Gospels and Acts uh, and the, four, uh, f- the first four Gospels, or sorry, the first four epistles. Um, if you reach Thessalonians, you've gone too far. And the reason I'm having you bring out your Bible is that I'm actually going to talk about um, punctuation marks. Um, and I really appreciated the Gospel reading today, but you miss the punctuation marks. So let's get nerdy together. All right, so chapter four. I've heard this verse before. I've used it to comfort myself when teaching gets tough, but I've also used it to challenge myself. How has God equipped me for the works of service? Where do nature, nurture, and chance intersect with God's plan in my life? Admittedly, though, I've read verse seven um, and caught the end of eight and skipped right on to 11. God's grace was given to each one of us as a gift, something about heaven, and to equip humanity for the work of ministry. But this time around, I was struck by something that I don't encounter in Scripture all that often. I was struck by a parenthetical clause. This apostolic aside strikes me. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Turning aside to us as a reader, Paul is offering a commentary on Psalm 68, which celebrates God's power to help the Israelites overcome their enemies. Instead of celebrating God's gift to men, and here in Greek, anthropoi means both men and women, uh, Paul turns aside from his grand argument about the nature of God, who is over all and through all and in all, to tell us what? to tell us that the same all-powerful God who conquers foes and ascends high and bestows gifts also came low. In this apostolic, surprise, uh, in this apostolic aside, I sense surprise, an idea that begins mid-stride. Paul seems flabbergasted that the idea that the God he praises in Psalm 68, um, it, actually Psalm 68 was written for the music director in King David's court, um, that same God became debased. Paul finds this amazing. And that's not all. In verse 9, he says that not only did our God, who is beyond space and time and description, not only did that God descend into the world uh, that's confined to the laws of biology and chemistry and physics, but Paul thinks it's super important that we internalize the idea that that God descended first, that he came to earth first before he ascended to heaven. This business of descending and ascending, Paul tells us, are in fact the same. In the work far above the heavens and in the lower parts of the earth, God gives gifts to the anthropoi, to us. Whoa, that's all supposed to be parenthetical. That's just a little something on his way to the bigger argument. In two short verses, he captures the mystery of our faith, that Jesus, both fully human and fully divine, came to redeem the world. Not by conquering empires, uh, but through crucifixion. 
American pastor Reinhold Niebuhr has written prolifically on this subject in way more than just two parenthetical verses. Niebuhr says, God, the God whom we worship takes the contradictions of human existence into himself, that he descended to the depths of the earth and rose above it. This is the wisdom beyond human knowledge, but not contrary to human experience. Does Paul expect his audience will pick up on all that? Even with the text right in front of us, I'm not sure how it all fits. What are we to do with this parenthetical commentary on this epistle to worship music? This morning, I'd like to wade into the historical complexity of this passage because I'm a history teacher. And while a lot has changed since the first century, Christians are and were intertwined with the history of the ancient Mediterranean. Despite the chasm of time and space between us and the Ephesians, hearing this morning's scripture and working out its message for us today is exactly what Paul had in mind. I think that the historical context will help us understand the universal message of scripture. I believe that God is still speaking, that these letters have something to say to us today. So wherever you're at, if this morning you've got your eye on the big picture, let God speak. But if you also, like me, want to wade into grammatical clauses and the historical context, I think God speaks there too. So what's going on in Ephesus? Ephesus was a cosmopolitan, diverse uh, city with a storied history. A port city on the Mediterranean coast of present-day Turkey. The city was an influential seat of power which helped bring about peace in the Hellenistic period about 300 years before Jesus. Where there is peace, there is art and architecture in the ancient world, and in this context, Ephesus became the home to the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple was four times larger than the Parthenon, which sits on the top of the Acropolis in Athens, and uh, it made the city a center for pilgrimage and religious worship. When the city was later conquered by the Romans, its status as a cultural hub of the region was solidified by some more monumental buildings. The Library of Celsus became the third largest library the world had ever seen, and they built an amphitheater, which no Roman city could do without. And that amphitheater could seat 25,000 people, which archaeologists estimate was about half or a third of the population of Ephesus. They could fit there, all, most of the, the town, and I think that means that Ephesus really liked their entertainment. In addition to the academics, the religious pilgrims, and the inter entertainers who patronized the city's monuments, Politicians descended on the city when uh, the city became a regional capital. This brought prosperity and prestige to Ephesus, which, uh, was, which was then celebrated for its multi-ethnic and multicultural heritage. By the time Paul arrives 80 years later, Ephesus is permeated by global politics, multiculturalism, and it is the center of Greek and Roman worship for the people of the Eastern Mediterranean. The apostles set First, uh, first set foot in the city five years before he composed this epistle to the Ephesians. It hasn't been all that long since he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, but Paul is hitting his stride in his, missionary, in his mission uh, in Ephesus. We learn in Acts 19 that the moment Paul arrived, he had his hands full. In his first few moments in town, he clarified theological disputes among early followers of Jesus who had been baptized by John the Baptist and had not yet heard of Jesus's mission, death, and resurrection. He argued daily with academics in lecture halls about the nature of God and visited synagogues for three months straight, arguing about what he believed Jesus' resurrection meant for the kingdom of God. They wouldn't budge, and so he left them, but he performed miracles and uh, 
a particularly exciting exorcism. In fact, Acts tells us that uh, this exorcism prompted a number of sorcerers uh, who were probably studying in that library to bring their scrolls, their magic textbooks, into the street. And because of the power of Paul's uh, miracles, they actually burned their magic scrolls in the middle of the street. This um, seems to have struck a nerve. The religious and literary elites in the city freaked out. Resolving theological confusion and evangelizing to Jews were just fine, but the straw that seems to have broken the camel's back in Ephesus was threatening the elite, occupied with the economy of worship. Ephesus was not only a huge city, an important city, it was the epicenter of worship, a vibrant, opulent city of ritual and sacrifice and celebration. In stark contrast to our image of Greek architecture, think of the United States Supreme Court building, or the Lincoln Memorial, that white marble. Uh, actually, I'm not sure it's marble, but anyway. Um, the architects of the ancient world decorated their architectural elements in bright colors. Indeed, the Library of Celsus, the Temple of Artemis, and any other public building would have been painted in bright colors. With the religious mar uh, market saturated so with everything in glitzy lights, Ephesians would have had an overwhelming number of options to satisfy their spiritual whims and it sounds like they did indulge. The book of Acts records that there was a lot of money and prestige in the temple of Artemis. Its patrons and profiteers saw a danger in Christianity's successes. And, uh, and when uh, Paul uh, starts this, or when this riot comes out after Paul's miracles, uh, the townspeople riot, they ch chant through the city, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Their town, their identity was tied up in this temple, in this a uh, big church that's glitzy and glamorous uh, walls. Paul takes a hint and actually leaves Ephesus for Jerusalem. Three years later from a Roman prison, he writes this letter. It's in this context that Paul calls out the community of believers in Ephesus to speak the truth in love so as to grow up into the mature body of Christ. Out of this, environment, Paul warns of the cunning and craftiness of people who scheme to advance their own agendas, to advance their bottom line in the name of spirituality. In this public letter, which he hoped would be heard all around the city, he wants to remind Ephesians that grace was given to each one of us in the hopes that all of Ephesus would honor those gifts and worship together to build a more loving world. So it's to this community that he turns aside offering that parenthetical knowledge bomb. But I still wonder, to whom did Paul hope the reader would turn? Could he be speaking to the pilgrims to the temple of Artemis? Ephesians considered Artemis their goddess, to whom bulls were sacrificed and wine libations poured out. When her temple was constructed, no expense was spared. It is described by an ancient observer that compared to the hanging gardens of Babylon, the Colossus of Rhodes, and the Egyptian pyramids, when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. Yes, maybe Paul hopes that the cult of Artemis will hear that the one true God fills the universe and be unimpressed with their towering temple. Could Paul also be speaking to the academics and the alchemists who studied in the library of Celsus? These experts in the Greek and Roman philosophical tradition were his verbal sparring partners for two years in those lecture halls. They had access to the third largest collection of human knowledge uh, that the world had ever seen and were able to quote directly from the scrolls of Plato, Thucydides, Cicero, and Marcus Aurelius. 
I know quite well the sense of superiority they might feel uh, with the words of those they venerated at their fingertips. My most prized possession in graduate school was my library card, which unlocked the largest collection of books in the history of the world to me. That knowledge is intoxicating. So yes, these intellectual elites might have benefited from Paul's testimony that the good life isn't to be found in the ivory tower, but in the very human model of radical loving kindness that Jesus set when he came to dwell among us. But perhaps the audience most in need of this message are those most similar to Paul. Acts records that Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, they refused to believe, and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. It's from Acts 19. Remember, before his encounter with Jesus, Paul was a member of the strictest sect of Judaism, the Pharisees. By strictly observing the 613 commandments, or mitzvot in Hebrew, handed down by God, uh, sorry, from God through Moses, the Pharisees hoped to honor Israel's God, follow his covenant, and pursue the full redemption of the chosen people. Pharisees like Paul read Psalm 86, when he ascended on high, he held a host of captives, and they heard a celebration of a life oriented towards the heavens. In spite of what's below, that's where the treasure is. Paul believed fervently as a Pharisee and as a Christian that life's purpose was to honor God, but now after an encounter with Christ, he saw a path to unity. He believes that Jesus' sacrifice liberates us from sin and idolatry so that we can love God and our neighbor. Because on these two commandments, Jesus said, we should hang all the law and all the prophets. But some Ephesians disputed the idea that Jesus was the Messiah promised by the prophets. They chose to stick with the image of God, ascended on high, conquering his enemies, and bestowing treasures on the faithful, instead of the image of God on the cross. What I think is most incredible about uh, this in light of Paul's biography is that he could be be susceptible to privileging the most positive image of God. The tradition in which he was raised is intimately aware of the trials and persecutions of God's chosen people, of the Jewish people. Every Passover, Paul would have gathered around the table with his family and recounted the story of Exodus, the story of discrimination, and oppression, and even attempted genocide, from which God saved his chosen people. I can sympathize with those who were faithful to God's word throughout all these troubles, who studied and practiced and sacrificed convenience and fitting in to keep up Abraham's covenant, to follow those 613 laws. I can see why they might have had a a sense of superiority, The laws of the Torah created a boundary that kept most people out, but because of their faithfulness to these difficult laws, God protected his people, maintained his covenant. But in verses 8, 9, and 10 of today's reading, we see that it is in fact God, uh, sorry, it is in fact Paul's Torah studying background that helps him illustrate what it means to internalize the gospel. I imagine that years later in that prison cell, reflecting on his mission from Rome, Paul wants desperately for those who've been faithful but preoccupied with God ascended on high to hear the good news in these parentheses. He hopes that close reading their own scriptures by calling out the Psalms 
that this will highlight even what the, that the psalmist praising God's power, that that same psalmist implied that God would, through Jesus, be present in all things. Not only in tradition, not only in self-righteousness, Paul hoped that his example would bring unity to the community in Ephesians. While I like to imagine that his personal goal motivated our scriptural tangent, I can't forget the genre. The genius of an epistle is that it speaks at once historically and universally. Indeed, Paul's message was simple. Speak truth in love, and we will grow to become the unified body of Christ. Because of God's grace, your city, divided by Greek and Jew and Gentile, can be made one. And so, too, with our city. He believed that the church's role in light of Jesus' resurrection was to heal the divisions between humanity. He's really specific and really consistent about what this means. In every epistle, he underscores the good news that there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Paul hoped his message would be heard in the synagogues and in the streets, in the library of Celsus, in the temple of Artemis, in Ephesus, and here today. To Paul, the divine contradiction that the same God with the power to create the universe also died on the cross is key. His parenthetical theology unlocks the whole scriptures. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Through his crucifixion, death, and resurrection, Christ equipped his people to build up the church. Reinhold Niebuhr again, but this time I'll read the whole quote. Christianity is a faith which takes us to tragedy, beyond tragedy, by way of the cross to a victory in the cross. The God whom we worship takes the contradictions of human existence into himself. This is a wisdom beyond human knowledge, but not contrary to human experience. Once known, the truth of the gospel explains our experiences which remain unexplainable on any other level, on the human level and on the divine level. Through it, we are able to understand life in all of its beauty and its terror, without being beguiled by its beauty or driven to despair by its terror. Through the tragedy of the cross, the lowest depth to which Christ ascended, Jesus was risen and ascended higher than all the heavens and filled up the universe. Niebuhr and Paul agree, by knowing the truth of the gospel, we are able to understand the highest highs and the lowest lows. Meditating on this divine contradiction, Paul says we will shape ourselves into spiritually mature Christians. Does that sound kind of intense? Luckily for us, Paul was also a very practical man, and he didn't leave us without some guidance in this very heavy work. Later in the epistle, he instructs us to fill ourselves with the Spirit in order to become spiritually mature by speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, he says, always giving thanks to God, for the, uh, God the Father, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What I love about this call to worship is that there is no mention of quality. God knows our gifts and simply wants music from our heart. By singing together, we bring the Spirit, which has ascended, through our bodies into the earth. The laments and the poems and the hymns become incarnate, enfleshed, as we literally let them reverberate through our vocal cords and in our bodies. This morning, we're lucky enough 
that our choir has prepared for our choral response, my favorite hymn in the whole wide world. It's called, Were You There? It's certainly not a praise hymn, but it asks us to sit with the gospel truth in a beautiful and really human way. Listening to them practice this morning, I heard Paul's parentheses in action. In song, we can meditate on the depths to which our Savior descended in order to fill the whole universe, through tragedy to beyond tragedy. Thanks be to God. I pray to get that together our voices will fill this space with words of truth and love, and I pray that we will grow to become in every respect Christ-like, fully human and fully divine, ascended above the heavens and to the earth. As the scripture says, the whole body, joined together and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work.